You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Wednesday to you. It's time for Herd Mentality, the podcast episode each week where you take control of the content, the discussion, and where it goes. That's up to you. We talk about the things you send in, and once again, we have a lot of great stuff to get into today on the podcast, so let's do that. The first one today comes from Harry, who says, Since the Bills went with Groot and Boogie in the draft, I've been thinking a lot about the science of pass rush. It appears we might be lopsided at left end versus right end. Ultimately, I suppose McDermott's rotation plans will work it all out. But that led me to think about the Bills' past defensive lines. 2014 had 54 sacks, and I don't remember much of a rotation. Do you think the Bills' rotation strategy affords that type of production, or should I alter my expectation? What would Coach Marino do? So there's some fun stuff to dig into here. First, let's look at that 2014 defensive line in Buffalo that produced 54 sacks and look at the rotation. And Harry is right. There was not a lot of rotation. Mario Williams, 72% of the snaps. Jerry Hughes, 72% of the snaps. Kyle Williams, 66% of the snaps. Marcel Darius, 62% of the snaps. Then you had Manny Lawson and Stephon Charles at 31%. Jarris Wynn at 29%. And Corbin Bryan at 17%. Yeah, the Bills' defensive line rotation is going to look a lot different. Now, I don't think that the Bills had 54 sacks in 2014 necessarily because they didn't rotate a lot. You can be a rotate-heavy defensive line and produce a lot of sacks. It's just about how your approach is. And for this group, for this Sean McDermott-led team, he wants to get fresh bodies on the field a lot. So that led me to the idea to look into Sean McDermott defenses, how many sacks they produced, and who were the leading sackers. And within that, I learned some things. I was able to uncover some ideas. So let's go year by year over the last 10 Sean McDermott defenses and uncover how many sacks they produced and who the two leading sackers on the team were. In 2020, the Bills had 38 sacks, A.J. Klein with five, Mario Addison with five. In 2019, the Bills had 44 sacks, Jordan Phillips with nine and a half, Shaq Lawson with six and a half. In 2018, the Bills had 36 sacks, Jerry Hughes with seven, Lorenzo Alexander with six and a half. In 2017, the Bills had 27 sacks. Jerry Hughes with four. Shaq Lawson with four. In 2016 with the Panthers, McDermott's defense produced 47 sacks. Mario Addison with nine and a half. And Kawan Short, the defensive tackle, with six. In 2015, the Panthers had 44 sacks. Kawan Short had 11. Mario Addison had six. In 2014, the Panthers had 40 sacks. Charles Johnson with eight and a half and Mario Addison with six and a half. In 2013, the Panthers had 60 sacks. Greg Hardy had 15. Charles Johnson had 11. In 2012, the Panthers had 39 sacks. Charles Johnson had 12 and a half. Greg Hardy had 11. And in 2011, the Panthers had 31 sacks with Charles Johnson getting nine and Greg Hardy getting four. So what are my big takeaways here? When you look at the most productive pass rushers under McDermott over the last 10 years, two names really stand out to me, Greg Hardy 
and Charles Johnson. And I think the Bills and Carlos Basham and Greg Rousseau got stylistically similar players with Hardy being more like Rousseau and Basham being more like Charles Johnson. And then you kind of sprinkle in that Mario Addison player, and to me on the Bills, that's A.J. Epinesa. And then you sprinkle in that Kawan Short player, and to me, that's that Oliver. I think Sean McDermott finally has the group of pass rushers that he wants up front to unleash the defense the way he wants to. That should set our expectations high. But I think from a makeup perspective, when you look at the most productive sackers under Sean McDermott throughout his last 10 years, they are stylistically similar to what the Bills have now in Rousseau, in Basham, in Epinesa, in Oliver. And I think those guys somewhat resemble guys like Charles Johnson and Greg Hardy and Kwan Short and then Mario Addison in Carolina. So that's my big takeaway. Now, your original question was, well, does the rotation have an impact on the Bills' ability to produce sacks? If you're looking for individual sack numbers, yeah, probably it does. But from a team performance, no, absolutely not. Tyler says, little two-parter here for you. First, what underrated player can have the most positive impact on the Bills this season? I'm saying Cody Ford. If he is truly able to solidify himself on the O-line, it does wonders for both the short and long-term outlook of this team. I think that's a good choice. And if you didn't pick Cody Ford already, I might pick him. I'll give you a different name. Dawson Knox, the tight end. You guys are down on Dawson Knox. You shouldn't be. His last nine games last year, including the playoffs, after he got done with COVID, the concussion, and the calf injury, The last nine games of the season for Dawson Knox, 26 catches, 244 yards, and five touchdowns. If you take the production Knox had over his last nine games and average it out across 17, that equals 49 catches, 460 yards, and nine touchdowns. I think Dawson Knox is that player. He's that underrated guy that I think can make an impact on this team. The second question from Tyler is, outside the Bills, the elephant in the NFL room is Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being not at all and 10 being absolutely, how much do you agree with or understand Rodgers' frustration and why? And then uh, Tyler also says, rest in peace to 2000s college football legend Colt Brennan, which I agree. Fun player at Hawaii. Very, very sad to hear of his passing. So here's the thing about this Aaron Rodgers situation. I don't understand it at all. What does this guy want? He wants a team to do what he wants from a personnel perspective. He wants to be the GM. He wants to have more say in personnel. He's upset that they haven't drafted a wide receiver in the first round. I mean, I think the quarterback should have some pull and and his opinion be valued. But what's going on here? You led the number one scoring offense in the NFL last year. You were the MVP. What are you upset about? You've got Devontae Adams. They paid Aaron Jones. 
They've always prioritized the offensive line for you. Do I think they could have surrounded him with better receivers? Sure. Do I think the Jordan Love pick was a mistake? Yeah. But go play. This is what you want the end of your run with Green Bay to look like? Being at odds with the front office? I don't know. GMs control the roster. Coaches coach the roster. Players play. (laughs) I don't get it. So yeah, one, a straight up one. I don't understand it at all. Dylan says, not really a question as much as me wanting you to revisit something. I can't help but get aggravated when people use drops as a Dawson Knox problem. 2019, oh yeah, homie had butterfingers. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but I believe you've said that he only had two or three drops in 2020. If I'm recalling correctly, can you just touch on it for the people in the back that seem to want to bring that up every single time Dawson Knox is spoken of? Even some Bills media members blast him for it. I just want people to get off the Butterfingers page and realize that he is progressing. Hey, yo, people in the back, listen up. Dawson Knox had a big drop problem in 2019 as a rookie. 10 drops on 50 targets, a drop rate of 20%. However, in 2020, in year two, he had four drops on 44 targets, a drop rate of 9.1%. He cut it in half, actually cut it more than in half. You still like to see it come down a little bit from 9.1%, but yeah, the guy got better at it. So give him some credit and recognize the development that is happening. Tim says, I'm curious about Deion Dawkins. He seems to be a piece we have taken for granted. How does his performance and pay slash cap figure line up with the other left tackles in the NFL? What were his draft measurables And is he replaceable in a worst-case scenario or cap crunch scenario? Love Dion. Just want to know about options and emergency plans. Yeah, Dion Dawkins is a stud. Really, really good football player. Let's touch on the stuff you asked about. We'll start with the measurables as it comes to pre-draft. He's 6'4", 314 with 35-inch arms. Not the tallest, not the biggest, but a lot of length. 79 percentile for length. Ran a 5-1-1 40-yard dash. That's the 80th percentile. 26-inch vertical jump. That's the 25th percentile. 106 broad jump. That is 69th percentile. A 7-3 three-cone. That's outstanding. A 95th percentile. 20-yard short shuttle. 4-7-8. That's the 43rd percentile. And 26 bench press reps, which is the 64th percentile. Deion Dawkins is a very good, maybe even slightly above average athlete with good length for the position. He's never been injured. He's made 59 consecutive starts for the Buffalo Bills at left tackle. I think he's around a top 10 left tackle in the NFL. And um, as far as his salary goes, he's the seventh highest paid left tackle in the NFL based on total guaranteed money at the signing of the contract behind David Bakhtiari, Trent Williams, Laramie Tunsil, Jake Matthews, Nate Solder, and Taylor Luan, and he's within 500,000 of DJ Humphreys and Taylor Decker to be like in that 7, 8, 9, 10 range. He's 11th overall amongst NFL left tackles in average annual salary. Now, his contract structure, he signed through the 2024 season, and the structure of his deal keeps him locked up for sure, meaning there's no real cap savings to move on from Dawkins 
until at least after the 2022 season. But I think there's a really good chance he plays out the entire deal based on the overall structure of the contract unless his play falls off significantly. I mean, even after 2022, when you look at 2023, there is cap savings to be had, but not really that much. You're still going to accumulate a good amount of dead cap. And where he's going to be in terms of the NFL landscape of left tackles in terms of salary, I mean, he's going to be a value. He's already a value contract at this point. And as guys continue to get paid and the market continues to get reset, that Dawkins deal is going to look better and better. So I think there's a good chance he plays out this contract. He's obviously a big-time leader for the football team. He's been a team captain, reliable, good player, plays a premium position. There should not be anything taken for granted when it comes to Deion Dawkins. The Bills have an outstanding left tackle at a good deal, and he should be entrenched at that spot for a while. And I don't see any reason why he wouldn't continue the same high level of play he's delivered for the last several seasons. Hey, Bills fans, listen up. Nugenics, the number one selling free testosterone booster at GNC, is offering a complimentary bottle to all football fans in America. To get your complimentary bottle of Nugenics, text DRAFT to 231-231. This unique man-boosting formula is powered by Testafin, which helps boost free testosterone and total testosterone levels and increase energy and lean muscle mass. Plus, text now, and they'll include a bottle of Nugenics Thermo, their most powerful fat incinerator ever, with key ingredients to help you get back in shape absolutely free. Text DRAFT to 231231. That's DRAFT to 231231. Message and data rates may apply. The next one today comes from AP, who says, How do you think the Bills and other teams will handle the preseason this year? With a limited offseason and no preseason last year, it didn't seem to affect the Bills' offense since they got off to a fast start and there was chemistry early with Diggs and Allen. However, a lot more was made of the defense being behind in the beginning of the season. Do coaches rest starters and veterans for all or most of the preseason, or will they still play to get the most out of every rep? Will the extra regular season game also play into this decision? Well, it's going to be fascinating, AP, and I think every team's going to handle this differently. I mean, we saw under the normal format a couple of years ago, the Chicago Bears with Mitchell Trubisky. They literally didn't even play the guy in preseason, and it was like year two of him being in the NFL. So, I mean, you, you see a wide range already from the previous format. And so I'm thinking with what we learned last year, the extra game in the regular season, the reduced preseason, kind of defenses being behind last year. I think all of that's going to play into it. I think you have the right criteria to bring up that's going to impact these decisions, but I think every team's going to handle it differently. For the Bills, particularly on offense, I think you want to give them some run, give them a few series maybe each game. But for the most part, after seeing the way Josh and Diggs started last year and very little in terms of new pieces, I don't know that I'd play them a ton. Maybe the offensive line, just because you've never had that group together, you know, try to get a quarter or so in each game in. But I'd be very, very cautious about really feeling like I needed to get a lot of reps out of my players if I were the Bills. Now, defensively, maybe that's a different story. And obviously, those young players, those rookies this year, the rookies from last year that really didn't get a chance to play much, guys like Dane Jackson, Isaiah Hodgins, those types of players – yeah, get out there on the field a good bit, but 
you've got to balance that, and I think we'll see a lot of variance across the league in how they approach it. It's going to be fascinating. Vin says, by now, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of Devin Singletary. He definitely appears to have committed his offseason on improving his body. I really hope this helps him improve his game. I still have memories of last offseason seeing Mohamed Sanu and Cam Newton get all ripped up. I was hoping to get your thoughts about this topic. Yes, Vin, I have seen those pictures of Devin Singletary, and I'm encouraged, right? That's what you want to see. You want to see your football players working hard in the offseason, working on their bodies, improving their skills, being in shape, all of that stuff. It definitely is an encouraging sign. However, I mean, Devin Singletary is one of thousands of players across the NFL right now that are working really, really hard to deliver a great season this year. I'm not trying to minimalize what he's doing. All right? that, that's not my intent. But these are professional athletes. Their body, their physical traits, their gift, their athleticism, that's going to be what they hang their hat on. That's going to be how they produce and make money and stick in the game. So I try not to get overly excited because while – I don't want to take anything away from Devin Singletary. I just feel like this is pretty much par for the course, or it should be par for the course for every player in the NFL. And some guys just work hard and grind, and you never know. Like you don't, they're not on social media, pictures don't come out, they don't record themselves doing workouts all the time, but they're doing it. So, you know, I kind of balance that out in my head and I don't try to put too much into it, but there's definitely nothing bad about it. It's definitely encouraging. It's what you want to see. Troy says, so even though we've beaten the drum to upgrade CB2, it appears it will never happen. With that being said, if God forbid Trey White were to go down for a few weeks, what is the plan? You've often stated that this team is too good to depend on a below average option at QB2 if Josh Allen were to go down for a couple weeks. Could the same be said for Trey White with no reasonable CB2 that could take his role? So what's the plan? The plan is Levi Wallace and Dane Jackson as your starting outside corners should Trey White not be available. And something could change. The Bills could sign Steven Nelson or Richard Sherman and change those dynamics a little bit, but I would say that outside cornerback depth is definitely something that gives me a lot of concern about this football team. Now, like you mentioned, we've beaten the drum to upgrade CB2, but it really hasn't happened. I think that signals two things to us. Number one, the team is pretty comfortable with Levi Wallace. He's really been the option opposite of Trey White for like two and a half seasons now. So they keep playing him, and he keeps on performing at a reasonable level, and I think they're pretty comfortable with him. And I also think this signals to us that cornerback is not a position that's super highly valued in this defense. Now, we can debate whether or not it should, but I think the reality is, based on the actions of Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean when it comes to personnel, is that it's not a super high priority position for them. So with that being the case and understanding that the Bills are literally a snap away from Levi Wallace and Dane Jackson being the starting cornerback duo for the team, I think that's just the way it is. And let's keep our fingers crossed that Trey White stays healthy. The next one comes from Daniel, who says, would love to hear your thoughts on the impact that Josh Allen's progress this year had on Trey Lance's draft position 
with them both profiling as somewhat raw athletes in the draft. So Trey Lance, number three overall pick by the San Francisco 49ers. They traded up from 12 to three, gave up number 12 this year and their first round pick in 2022 and 2023 to come up for Trey Lance. And Lance is interesting, um, very physically gifted, good size, good athleticism, has a big-time arm. With that being said, he's extremely raw. I mean, only 318 passing attempts for his career at North Dakota State. I mean, he's literally half of what Josh Allen had coming into the NFL out of Wyoming. So a smaller level of competition, the FCS level, with a very very small resume of, of passing attempts, the 49ers definitely took a swing here. And obviously Lance does have dynamic physical gifts, and that's what the appeal is. Now, I don't want to give Josh Allen full credit for them doing this. I, I'm sure that Kyle Shanahan didn't say to himself, I've got to find the next Josh Allen. But I do think seeing the development of a player like Josh Allen gave them courage and will give other teams courage to be willing to take those types of gambles on guys that are definitely raw and underdeveloped but have top-tier physical traits at the quarterback position. So it's hard to say how much impact it had, but I would say that it definitely gave them some courage, if that makes sense, to, to make that type of a swing. Steve says, I hope you and the family are well. We are, Steve. Thank you for asking, and I hope the same is true for you. I think you play defensive line in high school. We've heard your profiles on your daughter and she's growing up, but never a profile on you. Can you give us your own draft profile on yourself coming out of high school, including measurables, ideal role, scheme fit, player comp, and draft grade? Okay, since you asked. So I played my high school football at Weddington High School, and my first year there was actually the first year that the school ever existed. It was brand new. And I was part of the first graduating class to have gone there for all four years of high school. I played defensive end and offensive tackle. I played on every single special teams unit except the kickoff team. And I'll be honest, I'm still pretty pissed about that. I wanted to be on the kickoff team, but that was literally the only play that I wasn't on the field. Defensive end, offensive tackle, and then all the other special teams. I was six foot three, 215 pounds. My senior year, and I think I was an above-average player. I was all-conference at both offense and defense my senior year. My college opportunities came at defense, though. People viewed me as a defensive end. I committed to play at Wingate University for Joe Reich, who is Frank Reich's brother. And then after working out starting in January, my senior year of high school, and doing all the spring and summer programs, I actually ended up not playing for Wingate or college football at all for reasons that I I personally deeply regret. I I wish I didn't make that decision. My ideal role, scheme fit player, comparison, and draft grade, this is what I'll say about that. I saw myself as an eventual starter at defensive end for Wingate in a 4-3 defense. I definitely needed to get bigger and stronger. You know, I was 18 years old, 6'3", 215 pounds, but I figured that I had the frame to do that. Uh, The players that I watched the most and wanted to be like were Marcellus Wiley and then Aaron Schobel. So I'll say Aaron Schobel was my stylistic comparison. And I think I was a pretty decent recruit for the D2 level. I did speak with Gardner-Webb, which was an FBS school as well as Appalachian State, but I wanted to stay close to home, so I never really opened my recruiting, and I just wanted to play at Wingate where my brother was already on the team 
and he was a three-year starter and a team captain. So I was kind of lasered in on Wingate from the uh, from the get-go, and and that's that's what I had my sights set on doing until I uh, I, I pulled the plug at the last second, and I regret that. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and the UFC. Before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit in the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in the game. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code Locked On. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Folks, if you haven't tried Built Bar yet, I'm not sure what you're waiting for. They have so many amazing flavors. The birthday cake flavor is back out. I just ordered myself a couple of boxes. You should too. They're all delicious. They're all covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to chew. It's like eating a candy bar, but it's good for you. Built Bars are great for anyone who is health conscious. Whether you want to lose weight, maintain weight, or just indulge in a delicious treat, you got to try Built Bars. They're low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber, and perfect for anyone who is on the keto diet. I've got a deal for you. If you want to try those birthday cake Built Bars, go over to BuiltBar.com and whatever you order, use our promo code LOCKED15. You'll get 15% off your next order. Again, that is promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. The next one today comes from Jeremy, and he says, My question is about football jargon, specifically the difference between combine speed and game speed. I've heard this distinction for years but never understood the difference. This may be a dumb question, but what is the difference? And more importantly, why is there a difference? I ask because some analysts have said Marcus Stevenson has faster game speed relative to his 4.45 Pro Day 40 time. I believe there was similar chatter about Gabriel Davis last year. He ran a 4.51 at the Combine, I believe. Why is there a difference between Combine speed and game speed, and what factors go into making that distinction? Is it just an eye test from watching tape, or is there more to it? Love the question, Jeremy, and I do think this does apply to Stevenson and Davis to an extent. The difference between combine speed and game speed is combine speed is measured. You train or you should train to correctly run a 40-yard dash and all the technique that goes into it, how you start, how you get out of your stance, your leverage, when you open your stride, your posture, how to finish the run. There is technique involved with running a 40-yard dash that if you perfect those techniques, you can get a great time. That is very different than what it looks like on a football field when you have pads on and you're starting in a different stance and you have to run under the circumstances of a football game. So you can see how somebody can train to execute a 40-yard dash with perfect technique and deliver a really good score but under the football context, they're not as fast. So it's misleading. Oh, this guy ran a 4-3-5 40-yard dash. He's got blazing speed, world-class speed. Well, is it because he had perfect technique to execute a fast 40? Or is it because he legitimately runs that speed on the field 
with pads on within the context of playing football. So that's the difference. That's why there can be a discrepancy. And the thing about Marquez Stevenson, and I, I, I would I would back this up. He plays faster than four four five. Because I think the speed that he ran the 40 in is the same speed that he shows on the field. I don't think there's a difference in that speed. Sometimes you can look at a player and realize that they had a bad time, and it's because they didn't have the technique down. A.J. Epinesa is a perfect example of that. Now, I don't expect A.J. Epinesa to be a blazer in the 40-yard dash, but from a technique perspective, he could have done things differently to have a better time particularly with his start. Some guys don't run in a straight line in the 40-yard dash. And look, we all know the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And when you don't run straight, you make it longer than 40 yards. And because of that, your time is slower. So those variables play into that measured time. How fast you are in pads within the context of football is often different. And that's why there's a difference between combine speed and and game speed, and ideally you'd love for them to marry up, but sometimes you have to ask yourself that question. Okay, this guy didn't get a great time. I thought he was really, really fast on the football field. Well, why didn't he get a great time? What was his start like? Did he run in a straight line? What was his leverage like? What was his stride length? Did he finish well? All that stuff. And it helps you gain confidence in the player from a speed perspective when you can say, oh, yeah, the technique of this run was bad. I know how fast this guy is on the field. So it's not with every 40. It's not like you have to really dig in on every single 40 that you see and answer these questions. But when there's a discrepancy between the speed you saw on the field versus the time speed, that's when you dig in. The next one comes from AJ. And he said, how do you value kickers? And this is a question running around on, on Twitter, and I actually tweeted about this. So we'll talk about it on the podcast here. AJ says, if you had the first overall pick and had the chance to pick a kicker that had a 100% chance of making a kick from 63 yards or closer, do you take him? So basically what this is saying, as I interpret it, and this is the framework for my answer that if I get the football to the point where the field goal is 63 yards or less, he's going to make the kick. So that means I have to get the football to roughly my own 45-yard line to guarantee three points. I don't know. I don't know. When this was originally put out on Twitter, it was could make a kick from anywhere on the field, in which case it was a very easy answer. But now I know I have to get the ball to the 45. So I'm guaranteed three points on every drive that I get it to at least the 45-yard line. Number one overall pick? Nope. I'm not doing it. I'm definitely not doing it. I would value this kicker more for sure. I'd probably pick him earlier, maybe even in the first round, but not number one because I still need to get the ball to the 45 at least, and I still want to score points, and I still want to have dynamic players on defense. So if there was a pass rusher worth the pick or a corner or a quarterback or a receiver or an offensive tackle or something like that, I would side with them over this kicker. Edgar says, how do you envision our cap situation for the upcoming years? 
Right now, we are not paying premium dollars to a quarterback, but that's about to change. Our D-line won't have the luxury to be the most expensive one in the NFL. If we re-sign Edmonds, I suppose we will have one of the top-paid linebacker tandems. On the secondary, we have already paid White, Hyde, and Poyer. At wide receiver, we have Diggs, and if he keeps playing like he did in 2020, we will surely have to make a restructure of his contract. In the O-line, four out of the five starters are not on cheap rookie deals. Is this sustainable? It's a good question, Edgar. And when you're paying your quarterback $40 million plus a year, it makes it more difficult. But that doesn't mean you can't have other good players on your team. You're still going to have the rest of the cap space to deal with. The cap will probably be around $200 million this coming year. So that means you still have $160 million to commit to other players. So it's not like it's impossible to field a good team because you're paying $40 million to a quarterback. I think the, the variable that we don't know is how this cap is going to continue to go up. If these TV deals come into play and all of a sudden the cap is going to be 220, 230, 240, 250, which I don't think is crazy to think, then the bills are going to be just fine, but so will everybody else. There's always going to be challenges with cap management, especially when you're paying a quarterback. But I don't think there's any reason to panic. I do think this does continue to place the emphasis on drafting good players and developing them and continuing to hit on draft picks and having lots of draft capital so you can continue to invest in young players that come at low cost to help your football team. The next one today comes from Mike from Suburban Driving School. And Mike says, asking an opinion from your schedule release podcast. You mentioned during the schedule release that you don't like Buffalo going to Miami early in the season because it is hot. Personally, I would think that might be the better time to go because Western New York is relatively hot and humid in July, August, and September, so bodies are used to it. Going in December when we are coming from 30 and 40 degree weather to humid 90 degree weather in Miami feels like 190 degrees from my own experiences. I'm just trying to see the positive. Mike, it's an interesting angle to look at this. Um, I haven't really considered that side of things. I will say this, though. My brother played football at Wingate, uh, like I should have, and they played a team in Jacksonville a couple of years in a row, and Wingate is in the Charlotte area, and it's hot and humid, and, and I mean really hot, and a couple of times they went down to Jacksonville and just wilted in the second half because of the heat, and I would say that Charlotte would better prepare you for those conditions than Western New York. So I see where you're coming from on this, and and the players can certainly answer this question better than I can. I'm just saying that that heat, I'm not sure anything prepares you for. But you make a fair point that coming from within the ballpark or you know zip code of of the heat uh, would be better than going from the frigid temperatures in December to the Miami heat. Randall says, if Aaron Rodgers does break ties with Green Bay, do you think there is a path for the Bills to gain some draft capital by trading Trubisky? If so, what would you be comfortable letting him go for? Or do you think they just might move on with Jordan Love, who they don't sound super high on? I think that if Rodgers leaves Green Bay, they're probably going to bring back a quarterback. If they send him to Denver, they're probably bringing back Drew Locke or Teddy Bridgewater. So... I don't know that this is going to create that natural opportunity for the Bills to shop Trubisky and get something back for him. 
And I don't think Trubisky had that big of a market as a free agent to begin with. At the end of the day, this team picked Jordan Love in the first round. They traded up to get this quarterback in the first round. You don't do that if you don't think he can be the starter for you. So if you say goodbye to Aaron Rodgers, you better be prepared to hand over this offense to Jordan Love. Because that decision already looks really, really silly, and it's going to look really, really, really silly if he winds up not being a meaningful starting quarterback in the NFL. David says, if I recall correctly, when talking about when they drafted for need, the wild goose selection was mentioned. There seems to be a fair amount of questioning whether he can make the roster. However, if they drafted him for need, they presumably had a need on the roster that they felt he could fill. Doesn't that make his prospects at least decent? So you're right, David. When they talked about drafting for need, Wild Goose was mentioned. Brandon Bean specifically said that was a need pick. I think what we have to keep in mind there, when Bean said need, he meant they needed more players at that position to field the pre-camp roster that they typically want to, right? Like they get the roster up to 90 guys and they, they typically have X amount of players at each position and they were short on corners, so they drafted Wild Goose as a guy that can give them another corner to fill out those numbers. So need could mean, oh my goodness, we need a starter or we need a primary backup, but it could also mean that, well, we're just short numbers here and we need bodies and we need people to fill out this roster so we can go to camp with the numbers we're comfortable with and it it could, could go like that. I think... For Wild Goose to make the roster, two things have to happen. If the Bills keep five corners, which we presume would be Trey White, Levi Wallace, Dane Jackson, Teron Johnson as four, to get that fifth spot, he's going to have to beat out Cam Lewis and Saran Neal. If they keep six, that makes it better because then he only has to beat out one of Cam Lewis and Saran Neal. So that's the path for Wild Goose, assuming Elijah Griffin doesn't make noise in this conversation. So I don't think it's impossible. I think it's, I think it's unlikely that he's a, a, a an active roster player. I think there's a good chance he's on the practice squad and gets some chances to be called up. But um, you know, it's not it's not a slam dunk that he makes the roster. But I'm not I'm not dismissing it. But back to your original question, need could mean a wide range of things. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today here on the podcast. Big shout out to everybody who submitted a herd mentality item to address. Really enjoyed today's questions and comments. Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to start digging into where the Bills stack up in the AFC East. We're going to measure the Bills position groups versus the other teams. And so it's going to be a lot of fun to uh, compare and contrast where the Bills are with the roster's in the division, and I think as we work through it, you're going to see a lot of turnover and change when it comes to all three teams, the Dolphins, Jets, and Patriots. So we are going to stack the Bills up against them starting tomorrow on the podcast. I hope you don't miss it. I hope you're subscribed to the podcast. I would love it, and I mean I would love it if you left me a five-star rating and a brief review. I would also love it if you shared the podcast. Tell a friend, retweet it on social media, share it on Facebook. All of that stuff is so, so helpful. That's going to do it for us today, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.